0: Welcome to the Policy in Planar English podcast, where we explain healthcare policy in bite sized chunks. Today, we're taking on a small piece of payment reform called Risk Corridors. And here to explain is Michael Costa, who we'll call a friend of the podcast because he gave us this quote.
1: One problem with healthcare reform is that you basically have to swallow a thesaurus and a glossary to talk about it. And that's unfortunate because the concepts are pretty accessible, they're pretty commonsensical.
0: I think that means he just volunteered to come explain things whenever we want him to. Thank you, Michael. He also has other qualifications.
1: My name is Michael Costa. I presently serve as Chief Executive Officer of Northern Counties Healthcare located in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, and serving the entire Northeast Kingdom. Previously, I served as Deputy Commissioner of the Department of Vermont Health Access, which manages Medicaid's healthcare spending in the state of Vermont. Part of my duties there, I spent a lot of time thinking about value-based payments how to design them, implement them, and manage them so they'd be a win for Vermont and Vermonters.
0: Now, if you recall from our earlier episodes, we're on a journey to a land where healthcare payment systems incentivize high-quality, patient-centered care measured by wellness and not by the number of procedures performed, and that furthermore, this land will have a lower total cost of care. If you need a refresher, then I recommend our earlier episodes on the definition of ACO with Kate Simmons and the definition of the all-payer model with Lawrence Miller.
1: There's an evolution in healthcare payment. We started with fee-for-service. Someone goes to a provider's office, and they get their care, and the provider gets paid. And we say, okay, but we're paying whether the outcome is good or bad. Then we go to the shared savings model, which Kate explained, which says, okay, we're going to set a target for how much it should cost to care for all these people. And if you do a great job and provide high-quality care and it costs less than we expected, you get to share those savings with an insurance company, uh, including public insurers like Medicare and Medicaid. What the risk corridor comes out is when we get to what's called two-sided risk models, which is just a fancy way of saying both an insurer and a provider organization are actually at risk. And so the difference between a shared savings program and a two-sided risk model is that a provider group like an ACO or a hospital or a primary care office could both save money or they could lose money.
0: We know that you can't just continually incentivize innovation through savings. For one thing, if things go right, there's diminishing returns on those savings as the system gets more and more efficient. It also doesn't match as readily with innovations that have a longer window of time before the savings are realized. Not every health improvement takes a year or two, and costs may rise sharply before they turn around. At the same time, payers can't just open the floodgates and fund any and all innovative approaches. We still have that double aim of high quality at reasonable cost. So let's say you've got providers heading down the track of innovation after receiving incentives and shared savings. How do you begin to change the model? Introducing a risk corridor is one way to keep the innovation, minimize risk, but not entirely distort it.
1: So, what we're trying to do in healthcare in Vermont is to change the way we do business today. People know they need to take risks to do that, but they don't want to take such a big risk that it puts their community or their healthcare organization at risk. And so, a risk corridor just says look, we don't know exactly the impact of this change, but we want to give people some safety that no matter what happens, the change isn't going to be either so big or so small that it damages their organization. For example, in our ACO program in Medicaid, it says, look, we're going to pay you a total cost of care for the providers in the ACO network to take care of everybody in that community. But we don't know exactly how much money it's going to cost up front to take care of those people. And so what the risk quarter says to the ACO program is, look, you're going to be a little bit at risk for that cost of people's care, but not too hot and not too cold. And so if we spend a little more money, the ACO has to pay the Medicaid program back. If way too much money is spent, Medicaid will take on the risk that's outside that corridor. And so it's just giving people the ability to take risk without taking up so much risk that it could really harm the organizations.
0: To put some simple math to it, if you have a contract for $100 million with a 3% risk corridor, the most you can lose is 3 million, and the most you can gain through savings is also 3 million. To get a bit nerdier, there's two main reasons why the entity paying would want to step in to pay more if the losses go beyond a certain threshold. First is what we've been talking about all along. Payers are asking for a change in how providers deliver care. And this creates performance risk, the risk of deviating from the path you've been on. Payers want that deviation to happen. They're part of pushing for new approaches. And in return, they're sharing some of that performance risk. The second is insurance risk. In a perfect world, providers would never incur this risk unless they happen to also be insurers. But in these models of healthcare payment, it's hard to avoid. Say you've handed over an upfront payment for providing health care based on last year's cost of care, and suddenly the plague surfaces in Vermont. That's catastrophic for many reasons. One of the reasons is how expensive care would be. If you want the healthcare care system to stick around to treat the plague, you need to reduce their financial risk. As a less extreme example, in today's healthcare world, especially in a small population like Vermont's, A handful of very, very expensive patients in one year can throw off all previous calculations. Again, we don't want an unexpected event that represents bad luck, not bad policy, to change the course of healthcare reform. For the purposes of this risk corridor conversation, we're focusing on the first type of risk, the kind that comes with innovation and change. Setting this structure takes finesse.
1: It is a little bit of math and a little bit of science. The math part is about, well... To have a risk corridor means that you might lose money. And so you ask the question, can you afford to lose money? And so an ACO or any other risk-bearing entity, anybody at risk has to be able to pay up if they're on the wrong side of it. And so you take a look at whether that entity has the money somewhere, either in the bank or through its members or through an insurance contract to pay for that. And so you're trying to find a combination of What's the right amount of the risk corridor to get people to get involved and play in the game versus how what ability do you have to actually pay if you owe someone money in a risk corridor?
0: In addition to the question of how much risk an organization can bear, there's the question of where the baseline lives. That's based on past spending experience and expected trends. Sarah Lindbergh described the work that goes into measuring total cost of care in a previous episode. A variation on this measure goes into the negotiations for contracts with the ACO.
1: The total cost of care is slightly different in ACO programs because you have to wrestle with two questions. One, are we going to have every single person in this program? And so far, the answer is no. In the Vermont experience, more and more people are inside these ACO programs every single year. but We don't have everybody yet. And then two, do you have every single service that a patient could conceivably want or receive during the year? And the answer to that so far is no. With any innovation, you want to start slow. And so right now, it's most of what hospital physicians do and primary care offices do, but it's not everything. So for example, dentists are not presently in the total cost of care or lots of services that are provided at home are not in the total cost of care. And so Sarah Lindbergh is talking about two things, total cost of care, the total cost that takes care of all Vermonters for all services, and then these ACO programs have a very specific total cost of care that says for the amount of human beings actually in the program, for a limited number of services that they will receive, here's the total cost of care.
0: We'll take a closer look at who's part of these calculations in an upcoming episode on attributed lives, which sounds like something from a self-help book, how to live an attributed life. But really, in this case, is who's being paid for through an ACO. Here we've been talking about risk corridors as applied to the Vermont Medicaid contract with an ACO. You don't need an ACO to use this financial tool. Anyone can structure a contract this way. The simple 3% up and down, which then broadened to 4%, is also not the only way to build the contract. You can make it more complicated, and Medicare did make it more complicated. The details of how aren't important at this moment. The important point is that the risk corridor is one tool to move healthcare providers through different stages of innovation, and that the all-payer element of the all-payer model doesn't necessarily mean everyone is paying in the same way. And that's one reason why not all members of the ACO network participate for each of the payers. Let's recap.
1: Risk corridors are one of the ways in which insurers and healthcare providers try to be really responsible while also changing the system. The most important thing is to make sure that people have access to high-quality care. And while we innovate, we need to make sure we have every safeguard in place. And so a risk quarter is just a way for people to look in the mirror and say, you know what, we're not entirely certain how this is going to work out. So how do we as adults understand right up front our limits to be able to both pursue a changed health system while also making sure that you're providing incentives for people to do things differently?
0: So we're talking one tool in a step in a journey towards healthcare transformation. It's an important tool because it introduces downside risk. But it should not be confused with the final destination, which begs the question of whether there's an end in sight here. It's a theoretical end that's in sight, but there is in fact a game plan for transformation. It is called, and forgive me for the word soup I'm about to speak, the HCP LAN APM framework, in which APM does not stand for All-Payer Model as it did in Episode 1, but rather Alternative Payment Model. As you guessed it, we're going to have an episode on that soon as part of the Policy in Plainer English podcast.